0: Hello listeners, I wanted to tell you about something that I use and was part of its inception, joyful.gifts. Joyful.gifts is a service that makes giving gifts very easy and joyful. You tell us who you want to give gifts to, set a budget, and then we select buy and ship the gift automatically to every occasion, while you have peace of mind. Best of all, you actually save money since the software continuously mines the web for the best prices for you. If you want to give it a try, it's at joyful.gifts. No .no www.no.com. Just type joyful.gifts in your browser, and you're set to go. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the history of the copts episode 26 the pillar of faith before we go back to the narrative of the coptic BBC and the events in Egypt I would like to quickly go over some big events happening in the empire last time we looked at the empire Sodosius I first have died in 395 AD and his two sons Arcadius in the east and Honorius in the West inherited the two empires. The real power, so, rested with a barbarian general in the West named Stilicho, and various palace officials and eunuchs in the East. To get the misybarth out first, the West half of the empire was in trouble. Stilicho was constantly putting out fires between internal revolts. Raids against Italy from the gods who were living in the empire and Germanic tribes that were displaced by the Huns and decided to take whatever they can carry and make a new home for them in Roman territory. To cut a long story short, by 408 AD, a massive horde of tribes have moved across Spain and France. Stilicho was executed by a palace coup and the Roman army in Britain abandoned it to rebel against the emperor instead. So basically, the Western Roman Empire became just Italy. And even there, it was a shaky hold on power. Important to us in the big picture are two groups. The first are the Franks. These guys were settled in northwestern France by Constantine the Great for exchange of troops. And there, they basically kept their head down, avoided direct conflict with Rome, and gradually filled the power vacuum that was left once the dust kicked up by the Huns and the migration of the Germanic tribes settled. We will go back to them in about 6 centuries from now, when we talk about the Crusades. The second group that is slightly more important on the short term are the Vandals. The Vandals, as in the Bible that the word vandalism came from, were the most successful tribe in the migration. They will vandalize Rome in a bit. For now, so they were cutting across France and Spain, then crossing over to modern day Morocco. By the time of the Council of Ephesus in 431 AD, they have made it all the way to North Africa besieged a city named Hebel, famous for housing St. Augustine of Hebel. St. Augustine ended up dying in the siege. Technically, naturally, but you can argue that the lack of food and supplies played a part. Then they took up Carthage and set up a kingdom, just a short sea voyage across from Rome, and a doable but difficult desert trip away from Alexandria. The Vandals were devout Aryan Christians, which distinguished them culturally from the Empire. They were a sworn in the side of the Eastern Court for the next 150 years, both as a geopolitical threat as their piracy made the Mediterranean maritime trade and communication network difficult and as an ideological threat as a rival Christian kingdom. Another significant consequence of the disintegration of the western half of the empire is the growing power of the Roman papacy, Unable to guarantee the safety of the emperor, Stilicho have moved on a to a city named Ravenna, an isolated city surrounded by marshlands that makes it very difficult for an army to approach. What that meant practically is that the Bobon Rome. Had a wide degree of political independence. So, when in a few years from now, Attila the Hun will threaten Rome, it will be Boblio negotiating to save Rome, not the Emperor or his representatives. We will get to Attila the Hun and Boblio in more details in future episodes, but for now, knowing that the Bob in Rome was a religious and a political leader will suffice. In the East, Arcadius was also more or less a figurehead, with his wife Eudocia pulling the strings. Both him and his wife died shortly after exiling John Chrysostom, and their son, Sir Eidosius II, took the burble in 408 AD. Other than the religious issues we talked about in the last couple of episodes, Sir Eidosius's reign was notable for a couple of things. The first was the Saedotian Law Codes, an ambitious project of collecting all imperial edicts and laws since Constantine in one place to serve as a law code. It was bulky, unorganized, and with many laws contradicting each other. Not to mention it was done in Latin while the language of the East was Greek. Nonetheless, it was a huge achievement when it was finished in 438 AD. It will serve as the source of the Law Codes of Justinian, which is a watershed moment in the history of law-giving. Equally impressive to the law book was the Theodosian Walls of Constantinople. A double set of walls that would stand against all commerce for almost a thousand years. It was the gunpowder and the biggest cannon ever made at the time to bring them down in the 15th century. For now so, they made Constantinople invincible. Which was needed because the eastern half had to fight wars on multiple fronts. The earliest of these wars was in 421 AD with the Persians over the issue of the persecution of Christianity in Persia. The war was essentially a limited one. The Persians promised toleration of Christianity, but no territory exchanged hands. This war was the first time that Pacific Arab tribes were used as a part of the armies of Pulse Persia and Constantinople. Generally speaking the pagan Lakhmid tribe supported the Persians and the Christian tribe of the Ghassanids supported the Romans. The military cooperation between Arabs and Romans would continue to increase and the know-how of army organization and the local geography will trickle down to the rest of the tribes, aiding them when they run over both the Persians and the Romans in about 200 years from now. Anyway, on the other side of Constantinople were the Huns, who were thus far more interested in consolidating their power over Germanic tribes outside of the empire than the direct conflict with Constantinople. But with the Persian War, they saw an opportunity for easy loot and raided the European part of the Eastern Empire when the Eastern army was away in Persia. Theodosius managed to get them to withdraw for a yearly payment of tribute, which worked to keep the peace until Attila the Hun took charge. The overall situation was, a Western half, barely surviving and just in Italy, with the Roman Pope increasingly accumulating power, a hostile Aryan Vandal kingdom in North Africa that threatened the control of the Mediterranean, and an uneasy peace with Attila and the Persians. A map is posted on the podcast website. Both the Eastern and Western half managed to get a campaign going against the Vandals in 440 AD. But both Persia and Attila took advantage and attacked the eastern half, causing the campaign against the Vandals to fail. In the process of fighting the Huns, the eastern armies basically lost a good bulk of their manpower and resources. Attila also managed to get 2100 pounds of gold as an annual tribute for him to withdraw his forces. So, looking at the big picture, the empire was falling on tough times, and clearly, for the 5th century policymakers, God was not happy. I mean, how else can you explain the pagan hunts destroying not one, but two Roman armies? Nothing sums up the mood in the time than Nestorius proclaiming on his first sermon if only the empire got rid of heretics that will solve the Persian problem. So if you are wondering why everyone is so obsessed about heretics that should give you an idea. Anyway speaking of Nestorius last time we left him he had seen the tide turning against him and had asked the emperor to return to his monastery in wider Syria. The emperor granted him his request and rather than an exile to the middle of nowhere, as it is typical for heretics, he was to be returned to his monastery as a respected monk. In there, he kept the pressure on John of Antioch, who was trying to reconcile with Pope Cyril, as we discussed last week. When John and Pope Cyril reconciled in 433 AD, both of them had to make theological compromises which saw Nestorius and his theology as unredeemable, heretic, and open up the debate about the nature or natures of Christ. Not happy about this development, Nestorius made John's life very difficult in Antioch by agitating against their reunion. So John asked the emperor to exile Nestorius, and the emperor was happy to fulfill their quest. Nostorius was exiled to the great oasis in the western desert of Egypt, both in Bob's Herald domain and in the middle of nowhere. Unfortunately for Nostorius, as soon as he arrived at the oasis, it was raided by the Belémis, a Nubian tribe. For whatever reason so, they released him, and he had to travel across the desert to reach the Nile valley. Now this trip is very tough, and probably brought Nestorius close to dying, but he managed to make it to the Nile. There, out of all the places he could have ended up, he ended close to Schnurda the A legendary meeting then took place. Nestorius, realizing that the end is near, asked Schnurda to distribute his money to the boor. Shenouda then demands that Nestorius acknowledges that San Mary is the mother of God, Nestorius refuses. Then Shenuda walks away telling him he can keep his money. The story is from Coptic sources and not confirmed anywhere else. We do know for sure from other sources that Nestorius ended up in the Nile valley and close to where Shenouda was. We also know that he outlived both Pope Cyril and the council of Chalcedon in 451 AD, so he lived for a while in Egypt. His cause was never abandoned and several bishops in and around Antioch kept advocating for him. Eventually they will be pushed out of the empire into Persia, who was now tolerating Christianity thanks to sedosius's brief four in time, the Christians in Persia will form their own independent church, dubbed the Church of the East, where Searle is the heretic and Nestorius is the saint. They will reach their height under the Mongols in the thirteenth century, where many historians believe that have the Mongols defeated the Mamluks in Egypt. Nestorian Christianity would have dominated the Middle East rather than Islam. But that's a story for another day. The Church of the East have survived in a different form to this day. As far as I can tell, Nestorius is still hailed as the saint and Pope Cyril as the heretic. As far as Pope Surro go, in the last decade in his life, he had his work cut out for him. John of Antioch was appeasing the hardcore of his supporters by telling them that Bobseril have accepted that Christ had two natures. And Bobseril, for his part, was walking a fine line between appeasing those in Egypt who rejected anything that had to do with two natures and keeping the union with Antioch. His semi-official line in private letters to bishops who reached out to him was that the phrases used in the reunion formula was necessary to ally and fears. But his thoughts on the matter have not changed. By 438 A.D., the relationship between Emperor and Pope was good enough that theodosius asked Pope Cyril to accompany his wife in a trip to the Holy Land. Now, the empress, who took the name Eudocia when she got married, did not get along with her sister-in-law, the Augusta Bulcaria. Funny enough, like all things in the Eastern court, their general dislike to each other and competition over influencing Eudocius took a theological tone. We will get back to them and how their personal dislike of each other took part in the Christology debates ongoing. For now, just remember, Eudosius Embra wife and Bucaria, sister, did not like each other. And thus, once one of them supports a specific theological formula, you can pretty much guarantee that the other would support the opposite. Out of the trip to the Holy Land, Bob Sorrow saw clearly that the theological discussions were still center stage, and there were plenty of different Christological theories, and that the Council of Ephesus have not ended the discussion. So he continued writing. Also, his focus shifted a bit. First, he wrote works against two Syrians' long-dead bishops. Who have influenced Nestorius, one named Theodore and the other Diodor of Tarsus, and as they were long dead they couldn't really write back. His writing against them will be used by the emperor Justinian in about 100 years from now another church council, further cementing Pope Cyril's legacy as the theological standard to which all other is measured by. Another easy target was the long-dead Emperor Julian, the Apostate and his version of intellectual paganism. Julian had written a book attacking Christianity against the Galileans. Bulbserl then decided to refute his arguments in his own book against Julian. The book was naturally a hit, and copies of it were sent to all the major cities of the empire. The literary output in both quality and quantity of Pope Cyril were impressive, thus the name given to him by the Copts, Bob Cyril, the pillar of faith. In Egypt, like his uncle before him, he managed to keep everyone in line, but a little bit more diplomatically. There is a nice story in the book saying of the fathers, an ancient source. And how, when a monk started preaching about Melchizedek, a shadowy Old Testament figure, being the son of God, Bob very diplomatically, sent him a letter, asking the monk to help him figure out the issue. Now, since humility and obedience is the biggest virtues in monastic thinking, the expected response from the monk would be, how can I a simple monk helped the bishop decide a theological issue. Anything other than that would seriously damage his reputation as a monk. Anyway, the monk responded that he saw a vision and now admitted that he was wrong. He also kept the pressure on paganism and was quick to transform pagan shrines to churches whenever the opportunity arose. John of Antioch died in 441 A.D. and he was succeeded by his nephew, Dominus. Bob Thoreau followed him and passed away on June 27, 440 A.D. at the age of 66, after 32 years on the throne of Mark. He was a man of iron will and a formidable politician. But this was not to overshadow his legacy as a writer and a theologian. Like Sanasius and Origen before him, his theology penetrated deep into the ages, and many of his ideas are still relevant to Christianity today. Administratively, in the fifty nine years between the start of Pope Seophilus' reign and the end of Pope Cyril's, the Egyptian Church reached its political peak. Inside and outside Egypt, two bishops of Constantinople were deposed under them, John Chrysostom and then Mastorius. in Egypt practically died out, and the church was in its way to be one of the biggest landholders and the wealthiest institution in Egypt. The Bishop of Alexandria was the de facto Christian leader in the East and with a tremendous political power inside Egypt. But that de facto leadership was on shaky grounds. First, the bishop of Rome was starting to adopt a position of primacy over all sees. As the political influence of Rome weakened over Western Europe, it became necessary to use the religious position of Rome to keep the hope of a resurrected, culturally intact western empire alive and the bishop of constantinople for his part hanged dearly to the title of new rome given by the council of constantinople in the face of interventions by both alexandria and nebalus and did i mention that there was deep divisions about the nature of christ with antioch that pope cyril barely managed to hold the two churches together Carthage was lost to the Vandals and thus ceased to be part of the theological dialogue in the empire. Jerusalem was important symbolically but was none of the material and intellectual resources of Alexandria, Constantinople, Antioch, and Rome. Juvenal, the Bishop of Jerusalem, have been and will continue to lobby to make Jerusalem equal to Antioch and Alexandria. He played his part in Ephesus and will continue to be influential in the next few episodes, so do not forget about him yet. Whoever followed Pope Cyril in Alexandria, if he wished to keep its leading position, he needs to be politically intelligent, diplomatic, and adopt a certain level of theological pragmatism, as Pope Cyril did, with the whole one nature versus two natures debate. Not to mention, a continuation of imperial policy would help a lot. So none of that the emperor dying suddenly in a freak accident and messing up your plans. That next pope would be Voltais Khorus, an enigmatic figure to be sure. We will jump into his story in two weeks when we get back to the narrative. Next week would be the special episode. Life in Byzantine Egypt. I may be able to squeeze additional questions that you may have had, but make sure to reach out as soon as possible. So far, the plan is to talk about economy, government structure, cultural output outside of Alexandria and Christianity, and Christian Coptic literature, which included you know the Archimedes as the focus. Farewell, and until next week music